You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, as Tunisia prepares for a peaceful transfer of power after an election that saw opposition secularists push the ruling Islamists into second place, we ask what remains of the democratic aspirations of the Arab Spring elsewhere in the region. And we hear from Kiev about the consequences for Ukraine of this week's election victory for pro-European parties there. But we begin in Brazil, where Dilma Rousseff has won a second term as president after a bruising, divisive campaign, and by a margin of just three points, the narrowest for many years. The election revealed a country divided by geography and social class, with Dilma winning big majorities in Brazil's poorer north and northeastern states, while her challenger, Aécio Neves, outpolled her in the more prosperous south, which accounts for 70% of the country's economic activity. Dilma says she understands that Brazil needs major changes, and she's promising sweeping political reform. So can she heal the country's divisions? And how firm is the grip of her centre-left Workers' Party on power? To discuss this, I'm joined now from Sao Paulo by our correspondent, Tom Hennigan. Tom, was Dilma's margin of victory narrower than expected? It wasn't um, considering the polls of the last week of the campaign, but when you consider that before uh, June of 2013, uh, the president was favoured to win the election outright on the first round, um, it was much tighter. And a lot has changed uh, since last year. We had the massive protests uh, when millions of Brazilians came out onto the street to complain about their political class. And her approval rating plummeted after that. Um, and she never really fully recovered uh, her standing um, following the protests. Um, the economy has slowed down significantly since then. Brazil is now actually in a recession. So that has made it a very complicated um, campaign for her workers' party. But considering the headwinds and considering that the opposition ran their best campaign since um, the 1990s, even though it wasn't as good as the, as the Workers' Party campaign, it was a, it was a tight race. But um, the fact that they won by three million votes, I think, means that the Workers' Party will be relieved, but um, also increasingly confident that they have a very successful uh, strategy for winning elections and that is um, you know that they are able to combine a certain um, conservatism when it comes to managing the economy and that I know sounds um, strange considering the country is in a recession but Brazil like many South American countries has been used to dramatic booms and busts and you know the Brazil has near full employment. It has a relatively stable currency. It has relatively low inflation compared to some of the neighbours. And then social programmes that have helped the Workers' Party um, bring down inequality in Brazil to end extreme or almost end extreme poverty, taking Brazil off the uh, World Health Organization's um, hunger map. So there have been many achievements that they've been able to do over the last 12 years in power that have meant that even when the economy had slowed down when they were facing major corruption scandals. They were able to win in the end by over 3 million votes. So it was tight, but um, still a, a, a rather comfortable margin of victory. 
Now, unlike many of the uh, leftist or more leftist governments elsewhere in the region, the Workers' Party seems to have until now at least been able to avoid many of the very, very sharp class divisions that we've seen in places like, for example, Venezuela. But on the basis of this uh, election result, how divided is Brazil today? Well, it is divided. If you look at where uh, Esther Neves, the opposition candidate, got most of his votes, um, it was in Sao Paulo, which has, um, over a quarter of the population, a huge um, uh, chunk of Brazil's GDP is here. It's the wealthiest state. If it was, uh, if the state of Sao Paulo was a, a country, it would be South America's uh, second economy automatically. Um, and Esther Neves won a huge um, majority here. So, um, and uh, the flip side of that is if you look at some of the poor, um, more economically backward states in the north and northeast of Brazil, and there uh, the president got, um, in some places, over 70% of the vote closing in, and one or two states on 80%. So um, she got massive majorities in a completely different sort of Brazil, which is is poor um, and economically uh, relatively undeveloped. But... I think the reason that she won was that um, she was able to get a better spread of the national vote. And in all of Brazil's five regions, she never got below 40% of the vote, as where in some regions, Ayatio Neves was unable to get 30% of the vote, as in the Northeast, which is the second most populous of the region, that bit that juts out into the Atlantic. And that is um, his problem. It's not so much, I think, that Brazil is very divided as the opposition has become a very regional opposition in Brazil. It's not anymore a national opposition. And because that opposition is centered on the most um, populous and, and wealthiest region, and they're able to build up big votes there, and um, particularly in Sao Paulo, that, that uh, makes these contests closer than they are in, 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 on the national level, on the national scale, even in the regions where the president lost, she did quite well, or you know was able to play good defense in regions she couldn't win, and then build up big majorities in the regions where she, she was able to win comfortably. And so it is divided, uh, but it's a more, that is more of a problem for the opposition than for the PT. There's no region where they are completely excluded from. Uh, Dilma says she's going to prioritise political reform. What kind of reforms is she talking about? Well, Brazil's constitution is relatively young. It was only passed in 1988 after the end of the military dictatorship. And um, I think most people now realise that after over two decades of military rule, uh, many people went overboard on um, trying to draw up the most democratic documents possible. And that has led to a certain amount of chaos in Brazilian politics. Now, when you consider that the new Congress in Brazil, which has a little over 500 deputies in the lower house, it's going to have 28 parties in there. The biggest party, uh, which is an ally of the President's Workers' Party, uh, but uh, it can't even get 20% of the seats in the Congress. So you have a very, very fragmented Congress. And one of the main political reforms that they would be keen on doing, and the big parties, even the opposition parties, know that this is something that the country needs and would benefit them, is to try and impose something like you have in countries like Germany, uh, that a certain barrier before you can get into the Congress. Because it's very hard to build 
uh, coalitions in the Congress, and a lot of these parties essentially very light on ideology, but are very interested in jobs, uh, in state autarkies, uh, state-controlled companies like state banks and whatnot, or um, getting pork doled out to their particular constituency, whether it's a region or a, um, a, a entity uh, uh, industry lobby that they represent. And that is part of the corruption problem in Brazil. Another thing that they're very uh, keen the government on doing, but less so the opposition, uh, because the opposition is business-friendly, but the government, um, particularly the Workers' Party, want public financing of political campaigns. And when you look at most of the corruption in Brazil, it is the result of politicians who have to run very expensive campaigns. By some accounts, a vote in Brazil costs more in campaign financing than it does even in the U.S., um, so it's very expensive to get elected in Brazil. It's, it's a very large, it's a continental-sized country. It's the fifth most populous country in the world. So campaigning here is very expensive. So what happens is is that politicians go looking for people with money, and those people want favors done in return once people get elected. So they will be the two key areas: uh, trying to reduce the number of parties in the Congress and um, having a cleaner, more transparent financing mechanism for political campaigns. Uh, finally, Tom, uh, there are some murmurs about a comeback uh, at some stage in the future for Lula, Dilma's more popular predecessor. Is that likely? I think it's very likely. Uh, and I think it is, one, because Lula is just so popular um, and he is so strong within um, his workers' party. Uh, he was considered a very successful, for some people, the most successful president in Brazil's history. Um, history mightn't entirely see it that way but um, many Brazilians still do. Uh, He's enormously charismatic. Um, Brazil doesn't have anyone on the political stage at the moment that can come close to Lula's charisma. Um, And the Workers' Party have a problem that they haven't really groomed a next generation of leaders that have a national profile that could really uh, step in and take over from uh, President Rousseff when her second term ends. So Lula is, I think, for many people in the party, he's sort of seen as a guarantee of a fifth consecutive term. Um, Many people in the PT, uh, the the Workers' Party, uh, talk about the 20-year project to transform Brazil. That is, that they get into power, they'd have 20 years, and that they could transform the country. Um, They've gone some way towards doing it, not near as far as I think many people um, expected when when they first took power in 2002. But... Lula is uh, definitely being talked up by senior people in the party. We were at a press conference on voting day on Sunday, and the president of the PT, Rui Falcao, openly said, if it was up to me, Lula would be our candidate. Now, he would not be saying that if he didn't think it was going to happen. Tom Hennigan in Sao Paulo, thank you. Ukraine's election on Sunday saw the pro-European allies of President Petro Poroshenko and Prime Minister Arseniy Yatsenyuk win most seats in Parliament. For the first time in almost a century, there'll be no communists in the Ukrainian legislature, and far-right nationalists fared badly too. The outcome has been welcomed in the West as a boost to the authority of the government in Kiev. But no voting took place in parts of the east of the country controlled by pro-Russian rebels, or in Crimea, which has been annexed by Russia. And the rebel regions of Donetsk and Luhansk are planning to hold elections of their own on the 2nd of November. So what's the real significance for Ukraine of Sunday's election? To find out, I'm joined from Donetsk by our correspondent, Daniel McLaughlin. Dan, can you take us through the winners and losers from this election? 
Well, the clear and obvious and biggest winners uh, are the two parties um, led by President Poroshenko, Petro Poroshenko, and the Prime Minister uh, Arseniy Yatsenyuk. Uh, Yatsenyuk's party in particular did much better than expected. Uh, with the, the current vote count, um, uh, his party uh, is leading and looks like it's going to have won the election very narrowly from the, the block of Petro Poroshenko. Um, uh, after that, there, there was a, 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 a surprisingly strong performance also uh, from a, a new party called Self-Reliance. It's a party that's been formed very recently by the mayor of the city of Lviv, uh, the main city in western Ukraine. And like the two um, winning parties, it has a very pro-EU, pro-Western outlook, um, very strong on fulfilling the association agreement that's been signed uh, between Ukraine and the EU, um, and also taking a tough line on the situation in the East. Um, the two um, smaller pro-EU parties that have made it into Parliament by the look of it are the, um, the populist radical party led by uh, a, a, an outspoken kind of firebrand character, Oleg Lyashko, um, which actually didn't do as well as expected. That looks like it's coming in in, in uh, fifth place at the moment. And um, perhaps a surprisingly poor performance um, from the party called uh, Fatherland, led by former Prime Minister Yulia Tymoshenko. Her power has waned dramatically since she was, uh, since the revolution really last winter, and she, since she was released from, from, um, from jail, subsequent to President Yanukovych's um, uh, ousting in February. Um, the party that represents most of the Russian speakers and the, the east of, of Ukraine, it certainly claims to be representing the interests of the Russian speakers, that's called Opposition Bloc. That's currently in fourth place according to the latest vote count. Um, and that includes most of the uh, the members of the former President Yanukovych's party, the Regions Party, most of the members that still remain active in politics are part of that opposition bloc. So they will still be represented in Parliament. And once the, the single mandate constituencies are also totted up, uh, the opposition bloc is likely to be the, the third largest individual party in, in the new Parliament. Now, the history of uh, post-independence Ukraine has seen quite a lot of power struggles between a president and a prime minister. Does this election result set us up for yet another power struggle of this nature? Um, certainly the hopes are, uh, and all the public statements from the two key players in this, President Poroshenko and Prime Minister Yatsenyuk, are all the, all the, the statements they're making leaders to believe um, that they are committed to not repeating the mistakes of the past. I mean, when we remember the 2004 Orange Revolution, uh, which brought Tymoshenko to power, in fact, as prime minister, um, alongside her ally then, um, Viktor Yushchenko, he was president. But their, their joint rule turned into an absolute disaster. It was constant squabbling. None of the reforms that they promised got pushed through. And the two teams basically ended up at, at each other's throats, with the result that Yanukovych's party, the region's party, managed to come back and subsequently take power. Now, Yatsenyuk and Poroshenko are insisting this won't happen again. They say that Parliament is now... Um uh, has a, a huge pro-Western, pro-reform majority, um, with only really the opposition bloc forming any kind of strong resistance to, to Ukraine taking this pro-Western line. Um, relations have been somewhat strained in, in, in the past between Poroshenko and Yatsenyuk, and certainly when polls pre before the election were suggesting that Poroshenko's party would win easily, uh, a very close ally of his, um, was actually tapped to probably become the, the new prime minister. But with the strong performance of Yatsenyuk's party, it looks like he will be in a very, very strong position to retain the, the premier's position. Um, and when you look at their, their uh, platforms, they are very, very similar. 
Um, and they, they've immediately entered coalition talks. Um, proposals are on the table, and they say that they are going to formulate a, a joint coalition plan and, and, and present that to the public very soon. And they certainly insist that it will, um, on all the key points involving economic reform, anti-corruption measures, an attitude towards the... Uh, the, uh, the rebels in the East and towards relations with Russia. They say that they have got very close common positions and these positions will be the main foundation of the coalition agreement that we should see in the coming days. So what can we expect in terms of reconciliation with rebels in the East and the attitude towards Russia? It's very, very difficult to see a reconciliation at the moment. Um, Certainly, uh, as regards Crimea, all the main parties say, the pro-Western parties say, they will never accept the Russian annexation of Crimea. And they say that in the East, um, they say that Kiev is doing its best to to calm the situation down, to fulfill the, the measures laid out in a, a broad ceasefire plan agreed back at the start of September in Minsk. But they say the rebels are simply not sticking to this and they're pushing ahead with Russian backing, um, not only with military actions on the ground, but with these elections that are due to be held on Sunday in rebel-held uh, regions of Lugansk and rebel-held regions of Donetsk. Russia has certainly um, uh, made... A potential reconciliation, it seems more difficult today by saying that Russia will recognize the results of those votes. Um, this is certainly something that the West opposes. It's something that Kiev says breaches Russia's commitments in those talks in Minsk. And if Russia does indeed recognize the results of these elections at the weekend, as it says that it, it will today, um, it looks like another step towards formalizing the effective partition of Ukraine and Russia's effective recognition of these two areas, Donetsk and Lugansk, as uh, republics that have broken away from uh, from Kiev's rule and are on their way towards some kind of, albeit unrecognized, statehood. And if indeed that happens, and you have this uh, this recognition by Russia of whatever the outcome of these elections is on Sunday in the eastern part of the country, is there anything anybody can do uh, in Kiev or indeed in the West to prevent the effective partition of the country? In the way that, that Kiev sees it, um, Russia is determined to make sure that this new pro-Western Ukraine and this new pro-Western government that is on the way to being formed on the back of these elections on Sunday, um, they believe that Russia will do everything it can to make sure this, this whole pro-Western project in Ukraine fails. The only thing holding Russia back, as far as Kiev sees it, um, is uh, Western pressure and Western sanctions on Russia. Um, they say that Western sanctions have prevented the rebels backed by Russia from, from pushing further into Ukraine, from push, pushing into regions like Kharkiv or taking the city of, of Mariupol, for example, on the south coast, then pushing towards, uh, towards Crimea and creating effect, an effective land bridge, which would link uh, Russia with Crimea. Um, Ukraine says the main factor are these Western, is the Western sanctions. Um, and they don't see any real willingness on Russia's behalf to accept the new pro-Western stance of Ukraine and to accept the territorial integrity of Ukraine. So all eyes, as far as Kiev uh, is concerned, are on, uh, are on the West and further measures from the West to strengthen sanctions on, on Russia. And we're expecting in days ahead 
with the approach of these elections and with Russia's pledge today to recognize the acknowledgement, to, to, to recognize the legitimacy, rather, of these elections in the rebel regions at the weekend, Kiev will again be pushing for tougher measures from the West, um, particularly from the United States and from, and from Germany, to lead the way in the EU and to make sure that sanctions are certainly not weakened and are even ratcheted up if Russia does indeed go ahead and recognize the legitimacy of the votes on Sunday. Daniel McLaughlin, Donetsk, thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. Tunisia's popular uprising against President Zine al-Abidin Ben Ali in 2011 was the first in a wave of protests across the region that became known as the Arab Spring. This week, the secularist opposition pushed the ruling Islamists into second place, setting in motion what is said to be the second peaceful transfer of power after an election since the revolution. So why has Tunisia's transition to democracy apparently gone so well? And why has the Arab Spring gone so badly wrong everywhere else? To discuss this, I'm joined here in studio by the Irish Times Middle East analyst, Michael Jansen. Michael, you're very welcome. The party that won Tunisia's elections is a mixture of left-wingers and members of the old guard around Ben Ali. Can you tell us something about them? Well, the uh, party is called the Tunisian Call. And the aim of the people who got together, which is very important, is that they got together instead of squabbling amongst themselves, are a whole range of uh, parties, particularly those behind the dictator Ben Ali and the communists and um, the centrists, the secular parties. And um, I think they did well in the elections. They say they have 80 seats out of the 217-seat parliament uh, as compared to maybe 70 seats for the the um, party which was in power before with the coalition. Um, because um, people are uh, disillusioned with Al-Nahda party um, because it hasn't delivered. And so they want to change. And it's very important for changes to take place like this um, because uh, if there's going to be a democratic uh, transition, and I don't think Tunisia is a democracy yet, if there will be a democratic transition, then you have to have peaceful changes of power. And I think the ruling power party, sorry, it, it couldn't cope with, the, with the, actually the job of ruling. They were always a, a sort of underground opposition movement. Um, and, but I do think that the, the head of the party, Rashid Ganoushi, who spent many years in Britain as in exile, is a very moderate person. And uh, although he may try to stir his... Uh, followers in election rallies and things like that with some immoderate phrases. I think he is, when it comes down to it, a person who is committed to peaceful change rather than revolutionary change. But as you say, this peaceful transfer of power is essential if uh, if a democratic uh, transition is to take place. So how far along the path to firmly established democracy is Tunisia today? It's difficult to say because there is a very large group of uh, Salafis, uh, ultra-conservatives, uh, who are against uh, Ganoushi and against the secularists. And at the moment, uh, they are seem to be contained. But I think also the hotheads amongst them 
are finding their means of expression by exporting themselves to other revolutionary situations. For instance, in Syria, the largest group of jihadis are from Tunisia. And um, it's, it's true also there are some Tunisians in Egypt, in the Sinai, along with Libyans and others. And um, so far, maybe some of the exuberance of the jihadis has been drained off by export. Uh, if we look elsewhere in the region, Michael, the Arab Spring uh, appears to have gone very badly wrong. And if we look, for example, at Egypt, which you just mentioned, President Sisi's government is jailing political activists of every stripe, practically, and has just given the army new powers. Is the democratic revolution in Egypt now properly dead and buried? I don't think so, because the people also want uh, democracy. They want a freedom of expression. And it didn't fail at the beginning to the extent that one thought it might have done. I mean, there were peaceful parliamentary elections. There was a peaceful presidential election. There was a shift of power from the military to the Muslim Brotherhood. And then there was a violent shift in power from the Muslim Brotherhood back to the military. But that was after a year of Muslim Brotherhood uh, poor governance and uh, violence and disappointment and also Muslim Brotherhood stacking the bureaucracy with its own supporters. So the Brotherhood let people down and that inspired the mass demonstration in June um, 2013, which led the military to, to intervene. But that was after peaceful transfers, yes. But now, uh, now that the, you know, the uh, military intervened, the, uh, they were backed by many of the democratic opponents of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. But the regime that is now established under uh, President Sisi is, it looks as authoritarian as that of uh, Mr. Mubarak. I think it's more authoritarian than the regime of Mr. Mubarak because Mr. Mubarak was tired and elderly in his 80s, whereas Sisi is much younger and he is a military man who wants to make his mark on the country. The point is we, we still don't know whether he's going about it in the right way. He's certainly jailed a lot of the revolutionaries. And he's also, they have just this week announced uh, measures so that anybody who is found blocking roads, having demonstrations, obstructing um, military maneuvers or anything like this will be uh, tried under military courts, which is one of the main demands of the revolution, was an end to military trials for civilians. So uh, Sisi looks like a hard, a hard hand uh, or an iron fist, and he's going about it in a most uh, extreme way of cracking down on any kind of dissent. But a lot of Egyptians just want an end to the constant uh, disruption uh, caused by uh, demonstration and protest by the Muslim Brotherhood and its supporters. If we look next door to Libya, uh, NATO's overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi uh, has left that country in a state of civil war. What are the prospects for Libya now? Well, I think the prospects are very poor, and uh, Libya is disintegrating into two main parts, um, Tripolitania and Cyrenaica, which were the ancient uh, parts of, the, of that area. 
and um, the people have different aspirations. And on top of this, of course, you have warlords and militias who are fighting each other and fighting the government for dominance. And you have the contest between Tripoli and Benghazi. Um, uh, and that is, uh, that is actually pulling the country down. Finally, Michael, uh, the most tragic situation in the region is in Syria. Uh, and that has now become entangled with the situation in Iraq. What is the state of the civil war in Syria and of the uh, fight against uh, the so-called Islamic State in both countries? Well, the Syrian government uh, has managed to establish fairly firm control over Damascus and over the border with Lebanon, uh, and the Lebanese army has helped them in that respect. Um, the north remains a sort of wild, wild west kind of situation where you have different fundamentalist groups who are competing for power and the Islamic State organization, which used to be called the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, has um, managed to get its grip on uh, Raqqa, which is a, a large city in the north, and also the eastern province of Deir ez-Zor, where there are oil wells. Uh, but uh, the Islamic State then, of course, swept into Iraq in June and took over Mosul. But the city of Mosul is very restive now. They, they don't want the Islamic State anymore. The situation in the city is uh, dire in terms of electricity, water, services, jobs. People cannot maintain their families. They cannot get food. So one doesn't know what's going to happen. Uh, the Islamic State claimed that it could administer these areas. I think they've had somewhat more success in Raqqa, which is their capital. But it's very doubtful that they can continue with such um, policies. They are alienating the people who live in these cities, who are fleeing. And the people flee either out of the country or they flee to the government-held areas. You've been uh, reporting on the Middle East for many years now. Uh, if you look now, uh, when we consider this survey, uh, this brief survey we've just had, if you look now at the Arab Spring and the events of 2011 and, uh, and thereafter, where do you think that stands historically now? Was it a flash in the pan? Was it a real change has something fundamental happened in the region? Well, I think something fundamental has happened in the region. Um, uh, one of the things that has happened is that you have a revolution in Yemen now, which is proceeding, which was one of the states which was also hit by the Islamic Spring, or the Arab Spring. And uh, Iraq is in serious trouble. Uh, whether Iraq as a country will, will survive this, it's very doubtful. Um, one doesn't know what's going to happen in Syria. I think Syria has a better chance of surviving than Iraq, but it's, it's difficult to say. And Lebanon is being drawn in uh, on a daily basis, uh, cl closer and closer to the crisis in, in Syria. So it is very difficult to say how the Middle East is going to... Um, get through this period of turmoil and trouble. It is, I think, the worst uh, political situation I've seen in the region for as long as I have been living or working in the region. And yet the promise of the Arab Spring 
was self-determination, a democratic reform for the peoples of that region. Well, that's, that's what it was. But, I mean, the people of the region are ignored by the leaders. And one must say that the people of the Western world in many countries are also ignored by their leaders who go about uh, carrying out policies which are not in the interest of their people or their countries. But this is what has been happening in the Middle East for a long time. And it's difficult to understand how these people think. The people will also take inspiration from the Arab Spring, I think. And they will not stand for all of the kind of terrible aggressions on their freedoms that has taken place before. I mean, Sisi may be in power in Syria or in, in Egypt now, but he may not be in power in Egypt a year or two years from now. An economist friend of mine in, in Cairo made the point that Sisi has perhaps 18 months to sort out the economy before people start, start going back into the streets. Michael Jansen, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com and you can find more Irish Times podcasts at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.